It is my pleasure and delight to introduce tonight's Steiner lecturer, Barry Mazur. You know that this college is shot through with little traditions of great significance to us. One of these is that we don't introduce Friday night speakers who've been here before. Once here, ours forever, this tradition implies. Well, Barry Mazur has been here often for lectures and seminars and friendly visits. So I'm breaching a tradition. That, however, seems to me, and I think to him, a good idea, faithfully to observe and sometimes gleefully to discard our conventions. After all, Homer says that as are the generations of leaves, so are the classes of students. <laughs> and most of you will not have known Barry Mazur. He is a mathematician and a university professor at Harvard. This title honors him with the privilege of teaching throughout the university, which he can do and sometimes does. For although a great mathematician has a particular talent, which is rare, he also has a human capacity which is common to us all. As his Greek name, Mathematikos, says, he is a devotee of learning, all learning. This is not to say that Barry Mazur doesn't have a particular passion for his profession. He loves mathematics. I think I have this right because, like music, it combines inexorable thinking with tranquil beauty. But I think you'll discover over the course of this weekend that nothing human is alien to him, that he'll receive every question, simple or sophisticated, with respect and respond with ingenious clarity. Ask him to explain some very advanced mathematical notion and he will lay it out until the chalkboard is a thing of elegance and behold, he will have inscribed in your soul notions both novel and profoundly native. And this blessed state will last for at least 20 minutes. <laughs> as far as his professional bio goes, you can go online or wherever one goes for these things. Let me just say that we've known each other for well over half a century, for we first met in 1958, when we were both fellows at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. In those days, Barry used to materialize in my office by climbing in through the window. <laughs> so you'll forgive me if this introduction is heavier on human warmth than factual information, which I don't much believe in anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but by f before I let Barry Mazur get to talk, I want to remind you that Gretchen Mazur, who was once a biologist and by a natural and easy transition became a novelist, will be meeting with students who want advice on the writing life. And Gretchen, if you stand so people can come and talk to you. Where are you? Okay. All right, thank you. Here's Barry. Oh, hey. 
Eva. <laughs> what do I do after that? <laughs> Well, uh, first uh, I want to say <clears throat> that uh, even though my title is what is the surface area of a hedgehog, no hedgehogs have been harmed in the course of preparation of this lecture, nor will you hear the word hedgehog again, <laughs> except possibly at the end or a hint of in the middle, and if you can catch the hint, let me know in question period. Uh, I should also say that uh, uh, I was asked by Eva to uh, talk about area, and I'm delighted to do that, especially in this community, in the St. John's community. Uh, I'm delighted to just contemplate the concept for an hour and see where it leads. Where will it lead? Well, I'll discuss uh, area first as a familiar thing and then push it to the limit to um, bring out its surprises. And then I'll discuss its companions. One of its companions is length. Length. Uh, is seemingly simple, but I think we'll see at the end that it's not as simple as you might think. And then proportion, which is crucial to both. And all throughout, there will be sotto voce the notion of invariance. So keep your eye and ear, keep your eyes and ears open for that. Invariance is the characterization of uh, a lot of the mathematical concepts that we'll be talking about. In the end, I'll be discussing what's called quadrature, which in um, ordinary terms means uh, considering two, in my case, geometric uh, figures, planar geometric figures, and uh, making sense of their proportion. What I really want to end with, and here I'll just touch on it, is a magnificent thought experiment by Archimedes, uh, his mechanical method, where he does something akin to weighing the areas of two geometrical figures to determine that proportion. Okay. So, oh, uh, Tom told me I have to point it. Here. Whoops. Ooh. Ah, there we are. <laughs> okay. Area as familiar. Uh, imagine this is a, an architectural drawing of a sort of freeform swimming pool, and uh, each of these blocks are uh, one foot by one foot squares in the architectural drawing, and you want to know the area of this uh, freeform swimming pool. Well, the natural thing you do is uh, find the minimum number of squares that cover that blob, and you have, therefore, an upper bound for the area, or you find the maximum number of squares that are entirely covered by the blob, and you have a minimum for the area. In this uh, case, it's 81 gives you, uh, square feet. 
is a maximum, uh, 39 square feet is a minimum, and so you've begun the game of um, actually making some sense of the area. You've done it by an estimation. Of course, if you want a better estimation, you better use one inch by one inch squares rather than one foot by one foot squares, but there you are. Now, I ask uh, in this um, transparent, oh, what is it? It's a slide, I guess. Uh, how good at you, are you at comparing areas? And I should confess that I'm very bad. I'm not good. And I suspect that not too many people are that good. Uh, for example, uh, consider the area of these two shaded triangles. I couldn't judge it. I see that the triangles have the same base and, uh, and the same height, in fact, over that base. Uh, thank God I know Euclid's Proposition 37 of Book 1, which I think a lot of the freshmen have just learned today. Is that right? Um, <clears throat> and so I know they have the same area, but that uh, doesn't matter much. Uh, just looking at it, and knowing in the back of my mind that I once knew the proof of uh, Proposition 37, Book 1 of Euclid, already gives me a better, closer intuition for estimating the area of these triangles. And the reason why I say this is um, that usually Euclid is um, trumpeted for being um, the purveyor of logical thought, which he is, rigor, which he is, discursive argument, uh, analysis in terms of definitions, propositions, common notions. But uh, there's another benefit from uh, Euclid, and that is that uh, he develops inner intuitions in you, which don't go away, even if you don't quite remember the proofs of the theorems. So in some sense, in my mind, when I look at this, uh, I know the proof of the theorem, and I also kind of understand why these are equal, but I don't verbalize it to myself. There it is. Um, I have two other slides which um, uh, hint at this. What I should say here is, uh, if you haven't uh, seen the Proposition 37, Book 1, it is not difficult to try to dream up a proof, and I, I uh, suggest that this is sort of interesting fodder uh, already for a question period. Let's uh, continue our review of how good our intuitions are by looking at these two figures. On the right is a circle, and its two parameters are labeled, the radius r, and I call the circumference t. Um, it's Archimedes, uh, his proposition one of the, of the measurement of the circle that tells us that the area of that circle is replicated, it's equal to the area of a right angle triangle whose dimensions are given by exactly the same parameters of that circle. That is to say, uh, the right angle is uh, flanked by two lines of length r and t. Now, again, I couldn't, uh, by my sort of primal intuitions, really give you a judgment as to whether these are equal, but when I see these two things together, I somehow, it's not that I review in my mind the proof, it's that rather the proof has a kind of echo 
and sort of helps my intuition. Let me, hey. Tom, help me out. <laughs> How do I do this? Ah, I got it. Okay. There's this uh, idea that, um, that the proof is the end of it. In fact, that somehow, if it really works, if it really catches uh, you, it somehow uh, boosts your uh, confidence in your own estimating skills and your own intuitions, your own way of uh, grappling with things when you're not in a discursive, when you're not in a, an analytic, if you're not in the context of proof. Well, let's push this analysis, uh, this uh, analysis of our intuitions and how good or bad they are a tiny bit further. Um, <clears throat> here are two, well, I have a little thing here. Wait a sec. There we go. Here are two curves. I have the steeper one. Uh, uh, the one that, that is, uh, the, one, the, the curve that's above and the curve that's below. Uh, calculus students might identify those curves as the graphs of uh, uh, 1 over x and 1 over x squared, respectively. And if we continue them ad infinitum, you might ask, uh, can you in any way visually make any judgment that makes any sense to determine whether the area under one of those curves is uh, finite and the area under the other of those curves is infinite. And the answer, I believe, is you'll never be able to do it, although it's one of the basic um, uh, exercises in calculus that says exactly that, that the area under <coughs> the upper curve, if you continue at Ad infinitum is, is infinite, whereas the area under the lower curve is finite. So there are limits to our intuition, um, but uh, one should push to those limits. Now, when you push a concept to its extreme border, uh, you'll very often see things that uh, you, will, you won't see if you just remain always in your comfort zone. And some of the greatest uh, theorems in mathematics come not necessarily at the extreme borders, but they come by the exercise of pushing your, your imagination, your mentality, or, and also uh, your technical ability to the extreme. Uh, one of the questions you might ask is, um, I gave a an infinite subset, I gave subsets that, that are in, uh, enclosed in sort of finite regions of the plane, and I talked about their area. How many subsets of the plane actually deserve a well-defined area? Does, is it reasonable to expect that all do? Uh, well, uh, let's, when you push things to the limit, you get things that are close to paradoxes. By paradox, by the way, here, I want to put a hyphen between the para and the dox. I mean, it's uh, sort of against opinion. It's not a real paradox, as you'll, uh, as you'll see, or at least as I'll, uh, I'll uh, claim. Okay, so let's consider something that is evidently impossible. You take, you take a square. Whoops, what did I just do here? Uh, 
you take a square and you cut it, say with the scissors, into four pieces, four triangles. You take two of the triangles and you chuck them, you throw them out. You rearrange the two uh, remaining triangles into another square. The question is, is it conceivable that the new rearranged square has the same area as the original square? And of course, that is totally inconceivable. Uh, it's inconceivable because uh, why is it inconceivable? It's, inconce it's inconceivable because we've started with a square which is a union, that cup sign here is uh, a, a union sign. So it's the union of four triangles, A, B, C, and D. We threw away C and D, and we moved A and B around to uh, triangles which are congruent and therefore have the same um, uh, area. And the same uh, square couldn't possibly be equal to the union of those two remaining triangles. Otherwise, the, the whole notion of area would be nonsense. Oops. Oh, gosh. I should learn this a little better. Okay. And uh, just to make absolutely certain that there is a kind of axiomatic um, <coughs> uh, underpinning to this, it's absolutely impossible if we know two things about area. The area of the union of non-overlapping figures is the sum of the areas of each of the figures, and the area of a figure is preserved under Euclidean motion. Um, because uh, if those axioms held, you'd get a contradiction. So, with this in mind, let's consider uh, another piece of geometry. It's no longer in the plane, but in the sphere. And I won't even try to draw a picture. I'll try to do it with my hands. Um, it's called the Banach-Tarski Paradox, and this is what it says. You take a sphere, surface of a ball. You can break that sphere up into four pieces, call them A, B, C, and D, uh, just as we broke uh, our square up into four triangles. Four subsets, non-overlapping, such that every point on the sphere is in one of these four subsets. Each of these four subsets can be, uh, or is congruent to any of the others. That is to say, there'll be a rotation of the sphere that brings uh, any one of the four subsets to any of the others. And now, you can throw away two of those subsets. You've got two remaining. You can rotate those other two in such a way that they are non-overlapping and they cover the sphere entirely again. Well, if any of those subsets had an area, then the, the area of all of them would, because rotation preserves area, area is invariant on the rotation, the area of any of them would be equal. So here you would be expressing the area of the surface of a ball, the surface of a sphere, as the sum of four copies 
of the area of any of the first four uh, sets that we started with, you threw away two of the sets, and it would be the sum of the areas of the two copies that are remaining. That's clearly a contradiction. And then you can think, what is the contradiction? What's going on here? Everything I said is a true mathematical statement. This is more fodder for the question period if you're interested. Okay, I said I would talk about length a little bit. It's, uh, as I said, it was seemingly a bit simpler than area. It's plain old length. Um, we know what, what's meant when someone says a 10-foot pole. Usually they don't have in mind the idea of taking a ruler and measuring this 10-foot pole. But uh, uh, what it would mean is uh, it's a relative statement. It compares the pole to a foot-long ruler. Uh, there are other uh, ways of measuring distance, much more complex than a ruler, uh, namely uh, the uh, um, star cluster that I've uh, written there is 180,000 light years away from us. Uh, that measurement is sort of quite uh, different and quite uh, subjective to a, sort of an immense amount of theory before one can make sense of it. But it's also a, sort of a bona fide length um, measurement. If we have a cup or a glass, like this glass, and we want to measure the perimeter of the glass, we can't use a ruler because the ruler is straight. We might use a tape measure, for example, or we might use a ruler and try to measure the diameter of the glass and then make use of what we know about pi. So length measurement is a rather um, multi uh, sort of thing. One might do it one way or another. But we all know what we, knew, what we mean when we measure length. Uh, the definition in Euclid is not very helpful in the measuring of length. A line is breadthless length is the definition. Uh, it certainly gets us in the mood as to what length is. Uh, <clears throat> it doesn't quite tell us about uh, equality of length. To learn about equality of length, you learn about it as a surprise in Euclid. Uh, Euclid is talking about the definition of a circle and, he, and uh, what and the definition of a circle is it's uh, a curve equidistant from a point. Well, equidistant means uh, there are a lot of points on that curve and they're all equal in distance. They're all the radius. So you've got already there an immense machine for um, giving us uh, line segments of different, uh, at least uh, different line segments that have equal length, and he goes uh, straight to the task of using that uh, immense power in Proposition 1 of Book 1 um, in his um, construction of an equilateral triangle. There it is in its full glory, and the reason why I put it there is for the last three lines, uh, the last three words, as was to be constructed. The first thing in Euclid is not a proof, but a construction and uh, you all know it, I think. And um, we should, um, in one sense, um, uh, be enormously uh, grateful to Euclid, who is the source for us 
of, um, let's say, the, the drive to make constructions that clarify in geometry. There are modern approaches. One is called the Erlangen program, which is um, quite uh, curious in the sense of that <clears throat> it doesn't uh, give priority to length as a concept or the allowed symmetries, the allowed transformations of the geometry. Um, they're yoked. They work in tandem. Uh, two lines have equal length if you uh, sort of deal with that modern approach. Um, if and only if there are allowed geometric transformations, symmetries of the geometry that bring one of the line segments to another. So length is defined specifically in terms of uh, the transformations of the geometry, which is uh, not quite um, the format of, uh, of Euclid. On the other hand, you can reverse the tables here, and you can say that the allowed transformations of your geometry are precisely those transformations that preserve uh, the lengths of line segments. So each of them provide the vocabulary for a possible system of axioms of geometry, and then the other concept would then be uh, one of the main features of the geometry. In other words, they neither, neither are genuine 100% axioms, but each characterize the other. They're each their kind of mutual characterizations. They're rather interesting, um, um, slightly changed flavor from axiomatic uh, uh, systems as such. I said I would talk about proportion. And uh, you have to, because length is at bottom a uh, relative concept. You have to say what the units are. Um, <clears throat> when we're talking about our 10-foot pole, uh, we have the pole, which I call P. We have the ruler, which I call F. And what kind of, we're kind of saying is uh, P is to F, well, is not equal to, but as uh, 10 is to 1. That is to say, it's... Uh, um, uh, there are ten, uh, 10 feet in this pole. I put a uh, quotation marks equal there. How do I do this? I got it. Okay. Uh, whoops. Okay. I put a quotation marks equal there. <clears throat> uh, but of course, the older notation is just uh, double colon. So. P is to F as 10 is to 1 is what that double colon uh, signifies. Uh, we're not saying apples and oranges. It's apples to, as to apples as oranges as to oranges. Um, and I want to lean on the as aspect of the relationship because um, that a proportion of length is interpretable as a proportion of numbers. Uh, well, that's an interpretation. It's worth bearing that in mind that we're making a leap here. There's an analogy that's absolutely um, essential to move from uh, geometry to um, uh, arithmetic. <clears throat> and after the discussion, I can remove my quotation marks from around my equality sign. I can simply say P 
p over f is 10 over 1, and I can directly see the arithmetic and the geometry uh, that is, say, going uh, from uh, uh, the p over f to the actual numbers, or I can see in the numbers some geometry. And it's very useful to think of this as a two-way street. Oops. Of course, uh, 10 is to 1 is one thing, but when you have the square root of 2 is to 1, you have a somewhat more complicated issue. Uh, you, have a, you don't have a common measure for measuring uh, either the, um, uh, the, the uh, uh, side of a square or its, di di or, its, or its diameter. You simply have to sort of deal with it uh, as it comes. And uh, when you do that, what you've actually done is you have uh, nudged arithmetic to extend itself to the vagaries of geometry, that is to say, you have begun one of the great analogies in mathematics. Arithmetic is analogous to, and nowadays one tries to make it as uh, uh, close to as possible, geometry each profoundly influences the other. It's a kind of um, instinct that goes against a view held by Aristotle. And here's a quote from Posterior Analytics. We cannot, in demonstrating, pass from one genus to another. We cannot, for instance, prove geometrical truths by arithmetic. But most of the deepest, I, say, I said much here, but I'll say most of the deepest mathematics goes counter to that. Uh, because analogy is, in fact, ubiquitous in mathematical thought. It's another possible piece of fodder for the question period I'd love to uh, continue uh, along those lines. Uh, as far as the definition of straight line segment, uh, Euclid's description is quite interesting. It's a line which lies evenly with the points on itself. Plato and the Parmenides, whatever has its middle in front of its end. That is, that he's, taking, uh, he's taking a line segment and looking at, it, looking at it as if it were a telescope. And by golly, all he can see is the end of the telescope, but none of the uh, middle points, and that makes it straight. Uh, so much for straight line segments. Lengths of smooth curves, well, that's another matter entirely. And we go back to the proposition of Archimedes that I brought, uh, uh, brought out earlier, namely proposition one, um, every circle is equal to a right angle triangle whose radius R is equal to one of the sides ar around the right angle, while the perimeter, uh, the circumference T of the circle, is equal to the base of the triangle. Uh, now, this is uh, startling in many ways. And the first uh, way is that it's the, I, it's the earliest uh, record we have of anyone uh, talking about the length of a curvy curve rather than a straight line segment. Uh, the proof is amazing. The proof um, is uh, the approximation by polygons. If you call the radius of a polygon the line that I've uh, indicated on this, um, oops, oh God. <laughs> I won't try this, um, this uh, beamer here. Um, uh, 
if you call the, <coughs> uh, the radius of the polygon, that uh, vertical line going from the midpoint of the polygon to a, a bisector of any of the sides, and if you break the polygon up into um, triangles, uh, as indicated, I indicated only three rather than this, uh, the six that I would, so that it uh, looks reasonable on the screen. And then you use Proposition 37 of Book 1, which we've uh, talked about, to uh, move those triangles over, uh, but keep their base and their height fixed, you'll end up with a right angle triangle with exactly uh, the appropriate dimensions for that polygon that we're looking for uh, uh, for the initial circle, and then you approximate the circle by polygon. So this is uh, one of the first proofs of uh, something having to do with uh, curvy curves that are obtained by approximation by polygons. Um, if you can't approximate by a polygon, you're stuck. Uh, people say that there's no way to measure the length of the coastline of Scotland. It's just too crinkly, and the closer the grid you do to make the measurement, the, lo the longer the measurement is. Well, what do you do? <laughs> do you say it's infinite? Maybe you do. I <laughs> leave it to you. Uh, mathematicians know how to do that. Uh, at least model it. It's, uh, the, the easiest model is called the Koch snowflake. It's the model of the uh, coastline of Scotland, so to speak. You start with a, um, an equilateral triangle. There we are. And on each of the sides, you build another little equilateral triangle on it, one-third the size, and you keep going uh, step by step until you get such a crinkly figure like this one, but you go ad infinitum, and if you go ad infinitum, you will, you will have constructed a figure with a literally uh, infinite length perimeter. So uh, how do you deal with that? Um, that's just to show you that length is not as seemingly simple as you might think, and so let's go on to area and um, uh, quadrature. Um, <clears throat> I find it really interesting, in fact, I should say, that when I um, uh, was trying to make these slides, it just struck me how uh, amazing it was that uh, Euclid began his discussion of area with this Proposition 37, Book 1, which people have learned today. Um, namely, uh, two triangles with the same base and height have the same area. Uh, the reason why this is amazing, um, I will tell you in a few minutes. <laughs> or at least why I, why I was struck. You know, I should have guessed he would have started his discussion this way. But anyway, there's a, a simple reason, not the amazing reason, uh, why you would have uh, try to prove such a theorem, because once you have this as a tool, you can compute the area of any polygonal figure. Of course, once you do that, the method of exhaustion, let us say approximation by political figures, gets you first, uh, further by uh, closer and closer fitting polygons, as happens with what we've talked about before. Uh, and now I want to talk about 
the other issue that I uh, raised in the introduction, namely invariance on the Euclidean motion. The thing about it, um, length, if you remember the slide about the Erlangen program, is if you say, you know, what, what number related to any two points on the plane will be invariant under all Euclidean motions, um, the answer is, um, if that number is going to have any of the standard simple properties it should have, up to scaling, it is length. It's also true for, the, for area. If you ask, what number can you, can you give to uh, figures, say planar figures or figures in other dimensions, um, three dimensions, for example, that have all the axioms, the axioms I uh, um, uh, alluded to uh, earlier. Well, again, up to scaling, it's only area. This is a, a, an, a, an astounding theorem, and given the generality which was proved by uh, mathematician Alfred Haar, a Hungarian mathematician right before the Second World War, um, that um, <coughs> That area is characterized by its invariance properties on the Euclidean motion. But there's a surprise with area that doesn't happen with length. The surprise is you get a bonus with area. Area is, is, is invariant on the more than Euclidean motions. It's invariant on the shears. Now, what is a shear? I'll tell you what a shear is. Think of a horizontal line and think of all the horizontal lines that are parallel to it. Now, move the plane in this way. You can move any horizontal line by a translation any way you want. You have to be sort of continuous, otherwise that's not civilized. But, um, <laughs> um, but each horizontal line you move, for example, you could do, you could do this. You could, um, uh, move the x-axis, not at all, but, it's, uh, but the horizontal line with, uh, um, uh, of height y, you could move y. But as y varies, you'll be moving these lines differently. But you could do other things. You can do, move like this, if you want. That is to say, every line stays where it is, but it gets translated by some amount, and that amount depends upon the line which changes continuously. That's called a shear. Now, the amazing thing is that even though area is characterized by its invariance on the Euclidean motion, it's invariant under a much larger collection of transformations of, uh, uh, of your geometry. And the complexity of this and the subtleties of this uh, infiltrate much of geometry. Now here is Euclid with his first proposition about area. And what is he telling us? He's telling us, uh, I should tell you, by the way, that any two triangles of the same base and the same height can be, by a shear transformation, brought one into another. So what is he saying by his proposition? He's saying, here's a particular example of a shear transformation. And look, area is invariant under that, not only congruence. So, OK, that was. Uh, that was my surprise, that, uh, that there's a, clearly a, a deep uh, thought behind uh, 
not so much the proposition. The proposition is beautiful and profound, elementary, but profound. But uh, uh, its placement in the book. There's an analog of shear transformations in three dimensions, and I'm sorry that this uh, slide is so dark. It's called Cavalieri's Principle, and the slide is supposed to show you some coins, a stack of coins, and a, a cylinder of coins. Now you can move those coins any which way as long as it still balances, and even if it doesn't. Uh, uh, and the volume contained by those coins are exactly the is exactly the same as the volume of the initial cylinder. That's an example, but a small example, of the type of shear transformations in three dimensions that preserve volume. Okay, the last thing I want to talk about is quadrature. And let me see whether I'm, um, what's, what's my, <laughs> what's my uh, uh, drop dead date? When did we, uh, we began uh, 8.15, right? 9.15 or not 9.05? Okay, either way. <laughs> Great. Okay, so we're on to quadrature. Now, quadrature really just means finding the area of something, but I like to think of it as meaning this. It, it's discovering that a simple numerical ratio governs the proportion of area or volume of, um, of two figures defined in English. That means you can't give equations for the figures or anything. You have to say sphere and, uh, um, uh, and a cube that circumscribes it. Or you could say, um, <coughs> uh, well, I'll give you an example. Uh, here's an example. If P is a par parallelogram and T is a triangle, and if P and T have the same base and the same height, then uh, the area of P is to the area of T is 2 is to 1. The perfectly simple uh, example is Proposition 34 of Book 1 of, um, uh, of Euclid. Um, and the only thing I want to emphasize is um, I've taken any parallelogram and any triangle. I've uh, related them by certain uh, relations between their parameters, but I haven't uh, given you a specific one. Now, if you think of, the, think of it this way, there aren't infinitely many quadrature problems. You have to be very lucky to have a quadrature problem. And one of the great things is that the, uh, in, in, our, in the records of uh, Euclid, Hippocrates, and Archimedes, we seem to have um, most of the simple quadrature problems that you can dream up if you don't have calculus, which is uh, itself kind of interesting. Okay, so here are a few more. Uh, the ratio of the volume of a cone to a cylinder that have the same base and the same height is one-third. Oops. Oh. I should have practiced this. <laughs> okay, there we go. 
Uh, Archimedes' personal favorite among the quadrative problems that he was responsible for is uh, the ratio of the volume of a sphere to the, that of a cylinder that circumscribes it is two-thirds, and apparently uh, it's legend. I don't think we have the engraving. Uh, uh, he had it engraved as a sculpture uh, for his tomb. It was so much of his favorite. Uh, one of the most amazing things, by the way, is the, is a early, the earliest Greek manuscript we actually have uh, seems to be of Hippocrates. Isn't that right? And uh, he loved to make um, quadrature problems out of loons. Loons are uh, the sort of thing uh, that looks like that shaded uh, region <coughs> um, made out of uh, circles. And uh, one of his um, early quadrature problems is uh, the statement that if you make a construction such as this, which uh, I won't go into very specifically, uh, the area of that triangle is equal to the area of that loon. <clears throat> but what I want to get to is uh, Archimedes. Now what Archimedes is doing is weighing area. Uh, it's the quadrature of the parabola. So what does he do? He takes a parabola, he draws a chord between any two points of that parabola. Uh, let's shade the region uh, that's constructed that way. Let's call that a parabolic segment. And <clears throat> uh, what he wants to do is find a simpler geometric object, it'll be a triangle, and be able to say that the ratio of the area of his, of the triangle, for example, to that um, uh, parabolic segment is a simple number. It'll turn out to be, at least in one uh, construction, four to one. And let me see if I can't, um, oops. But the, and he has two methods for doing this. Uh, the more curious of his two methods is one that he calls the mechanical method. It's a, a mode of reasoning that he doesn't give the full authority of proof. It's an example of just a plausibility argument. And probably, chronologically, the first example of a plausibility argument that's uh, actually self-consciously labeled as such. It's not quite a proof, but it has a kind of convincing authority nevertheless. Uh, he also proved it in uh, what he called a geometric way, which means a rigorous way for him. Um, but I'm much more interested in the mechanical method because it uh, illustrates for me the notion of analogy in mathematics as being uh, so powerful and so, um, uh, how to put it, um, uh, so essential for the continuation of, uh, of our subject. His tool will be his famous law of the lever that says that if you have a, a big weight on a balance beam that's closer to the fulcrum, it will be uh, 
balanced by a smaller weight that's further out from the fulcrum and the basic uh, uh, numerical um, uh, function that you have to consider in terms of this is the product of the distance from the fulcrum and the weight. And you can ask, what in the world does this have to do with area? Well, um, he uh, throws himself into this, into this kind of ingenious thought experiment where the rules of the game are really dictated by his um, uh, familiarity with basic physical truths and uh, hope that a profound analogy will link those, uh, those uh, physical truths to uh, facts about geometry. Now, I don't want to um, go into the, um, uh, the, this picture in complete uh, uh, detail here. I want to throw this as another possible piece of fodder for the question period. If you look at that, uh, if you look at that uh, roughly 45 degree line, um, it's uh, Archimedes' uh, balance beam. The point labeled K is his fulcrum. He's going to uh, take the big triangle, which is FAC, and he's going to put it where it lays on his balance beam, and he's going to take the parabolic segment, which would be ABC, and he's going to somehow put that parabolic segment at the point H and prove to you that they balance. And the way he does it is a rather miraculous thing. He laminates each of the figures, and he shows that um, by, uh, by in, this, in this diagram, by vertical lines, they're by lines parallel to the diameter of the parabola, he laminates each of the figures, uh, and he takes line segments that, that are obtained by the laminar strips of each of the figures, and he shows that each uh, laminated uh, line segment on the, um, uh, of the triangle balances exactly the corresponding laminated line segment just on the parabolic segment at the point H. So he decomposes his triangle into an infinite number of lines. He decomposes his uh, uh, parabolic segment into an infinite number of lines. He displaces them across the fulcrum appropriately, and he shows that they balance. Rather uh, amazing um, piece of thought experiment for someone who actually has already proved this thing by ordinary geometry. Anyway, um, uh, this is the strength of analogy in mathematics, and I hope we continue this in the question period.